Welcome to the Speaking Podcast. You can find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com. We're also on YouTube. You find the links in the podcast description. I'm also a podcasting coach. I've got four other podcasts, the Meditation Podcast, The Awakening, Exposing Fraud and Corruption, The Crypto Podcast, which is a bit on the news at the moment, and the Learn Polish Podcast, as well as being a podcasting coach. You'll find everything on bio.link forward slash podcaster. Today, my guest, looking forward to this because he's written seven books and he's the founder of Speaker Fulfillment Services, which is now Get Ship Done. Please welcome Brett Ridgeway. Roy, it's my pleasure to be here with you today. Hopefully we can share a few words with him that will help your audience out. Well, I know you will because I've listened to a few of your shows and I know that you've done a lot of things. So I suppose let's let's introduce yourself first further because i know your kind of journey on how you got into this but you might let people know who's brett sure you know it's one of those stories roy where you can trace back very specific things that happened that led you down that path but they're not things that you would ever plan in advance so way back in gosh 1995 i'm dating myself here i actually put up the first portal website in the plant engineering and maintenance industry so I, I was selling books and videotapes back in those days aimed at plant engineers, maintenance mechanics, et cetera. And it was where I actually got started in doing product fulfillment because obviously I had to ship the orders that I was selling via the website. Around that same time frame, I had a joint venture with a guy named Carl Galetti. And Carl decided to put on his first internet marketing super conference back in 1999 in Las Vegas. And I honestly didn't know what back of the room sales was, Roy, but I hadn't been to Las Vegas before, so it sounded good to me. So I said, sure, I'll come out and do it or whatever. And that kind of led to a, a side business where we would provide the crew and more importantly, in many cases, the merchant account that can handle a large sum of money in a short period of time with multiple speakers. So we we come into the event on behalf of the promoter. And we take care of all the money in the back. We pay the promoter, pay the speakers, and just manage the entire back of the room process. And when one of the speakers found out that we were doing product fulfillment for our own things, you know, he cornered me at an event like 2002 or 2003 and said, hey, will you just do some product fulfillment for me? And I'd been thinking about it for a while because it was the natural outgrowth of all the people I had got to know from handling the back of the room over a 15-year period of you know about 150 events and so that's when speaker fulfillment services was put together in 2002 2003 and it's still going strong today but because of my back of the room perspective i've probably seen about oh gosh 2000 different speakers over you know a 15 20 year period and obviously the speakers that we got to know from handling the back of the room became fulfillment clients for speaker fulfillment services so I also got to see from behind the scenes how they were handling their product launches, what they did very well from the stage, what they didn't do well. And then eventually, I'm kind of a natural introvert, but I overcame that and decided I need to get up in front of the room, too. And so I joined, you know, the front of the room with some of those big names, you know, sharing what I'd learned along the way. So it was kind of hidden in the back of the room to the front of the room guy. And, and now I'm just trying to share what I've learned that will help hopefully people have more success in terms of building a profitable speaking business. Excellent. And like, I just know from a few kind of promotions that I've seen where the promoter does for the sales, they do like a 50, 50 split. Is that the norm or does it vary across the board? Yeah. And that's pretty much the norm when you have a, you know, obviously you have keynote speakers, which are fee speakers and you have, 
free speakers who are they come to the event on their own nickel and they're going to make their money selling from the platform. And typically in the multi-speaker world, it's particularly in like internet and information marketing conferences, the normal split is 50-50. Now the promoter will typically absorb any you know credit card costs associated with the transaction, but it's on the speaker to you know cover whatever costs are involved in the delivery of his product or service. Now there are some exceptions to the 50-50, and you got to be careful if you're a you know, an event promoter, for example, making sure that a speaker doesn't try to, you know, sneak by you that they've changed the split in the contract you have with them or whatever, because I've seen that happen before. And there's been some events where I think it was, the, Roy, you ever heard of the Learning Annex before? It was the old, you know, Donald Trump Learning Organization from 10, 12 years ago or whatever. I mean, they put on large events and their split was more like 70-30, honestly. And it was up for you to you as the speaker to determine, you know, to get in front of that many people, is it worth me to give up that much more of, you know, percentage of the cut to get on that platform? And that's obviously something all of the speakers themselves can determine. Excellent. Years ago, at an event in Ireland, because I was doing business with a guy who was friends with the organizer. So I got to go up there and kind of hang out with the speakers, which was a strange thing anyway, because a lot of them had zero personality. And I was kind of (laughs) shocked after seeing him on stage going, wow, I was in awe. But what I noticed is there was a lot of them doing dirty tactics, as in there's only 20 of this and I'll be at the back room, whatever. And yet they're there two days later still selling this. And you know that there was more than 20. Is that like, what kind of things have you seen that people shouldn't do as opposed to what you would advise them to do? Yeah, yeah, we've certainly run into that before from handling the back of the room, Roy. And that's, you know, a lot of people try to sell on scarcity and they'll work into their talk. You know, we only have 15 slots or 20 slots or whatever. And so we always had to ask the speaker, all right, is this a hard and fast rule? You know, when we're, we're cutting it off at 15 and then we're telling them sorry. And honestly, in most cases, they say, you know, we can take a few more or whatever if, if we get a table rush or, or whatever. So, I mean, you got to be very careful with that because people, as you notice, can see through that type of thing. And, you know, I have a good friend named, a guy named Armin Moore, and I don't know if you're aware of Armin or not, but he's an internet marketer. And he would use a tactic always, you know, the order forms are in the back of the room, and I don't know how many there are. And that would be his implied scarcity or whatever. So, I mean, obviously, they never ran out of order forms, but he wasn't saying there was a specific limit of 20 slots or whatever. So, I mean, it was an implied scarcity, but not a real scarcity. And has anybody used, because just thinking of that there, you know, it would be like, if you were trying to say maybe sell a hundred that you could say, look, the first 25 is at X price and then it increases with the next so that you get a kind of a rush to ensure that you're reaching a certain criteria. You know, I haven't seen it approach from that specific standpoint, but I have seen it where they offer additional bonuses for the first 20 or 25 people or whatever. So you're encouraged to get back there early to take advantage and get those bonuses. And Honestly, since I wasn't involved in the back-end delivery of the, of the products or whatever, I don't know if they had more than 20, if they went ahead and gave them the bonuses or not, honestly. And because I, I find it a fascinating kind of topic, like if there's kind of when you have this promoter and speaker split and obviously, uh, like say, you were getting a cut for processing it. If there's returns, because I know that sometimes it's like you got to 30 day return or something like that like 
how is there kind of traceability for that that you're not like one person isn't trying to shaft the other yeah i mean we as at when we handle the back of the room we would always hold back any payments for at least 30 to 35 days for that very reason so if a refund came in you're not going back to the speaker or the promoter and saying, hey, you need to give us money back that we've already paid you because the person did a refund. So there will always be some lag in the process. Okay, excellent. So you've obviously seen a lot of speakers. Obviously, I think when you're at the back of the room, but once you start to speak in yourself, I think you start putting a different hat on how you evaluate speakers. So what kind of mistakes do you see speakers making? You know, one of the biggest things I see, honestly, is there's a big difference when you're speaking between just delivering a content-only session and when you're actually trying to sell from the platform. And most of the speaking that I've done has been content-only sessions to, you know, break up an event so it's not just pitch after pitch after pitch. And so it was a credibility builder for me, but I wasn't really trying to sell anything directly from the platform. Obviously, I hope the fulfillment company would maybe get some business out of it long term. And eventually, you know, Brett Ridgway would get to be known better and all that. But I wasn't selling. So the dynamics change entirely. Obviously, in a typical stage presentation, in at least 80% of your time needs to be delivering content, whether you're selling or not. And then, you know, the last 15, 20% at the most is offering your particular product, service, whatever it may be. But the transition between the content only and the sales portion really needs to be seamless. And it takes a lot of practice. And you've got to do it again, again, and again. And you've really got to test a lot of different variables and what's going to work best for you in a sales situation. I mean, tracking is something that a lot of speakers are very weak at in terms of how it affects their direct results. I mean, if you're really a professional speaker, you've got to be tracking a lot of different things. And only over time, obviously, will you recognize what really impacts your sales the most. But it could be things like, you know, for a man, do you sell better if you're wearing a suit and tie or whether you're more casual in a sport coat and jeans or whatever? You know, for a woman, do you sell better if you're wearing a brightly colored dress or a professional, you know, pantsuit or whatever? I mean, you need to track your times. I mean, do you sell better if you're in the morning and in the afternoon? If you follow a particular speaker or not, you know, is your audience men or women? I mean, they're just, you know, there's dozens of different variables that you could track and you've got to determine which ones are the most key for you so that you can, again, determine what's going to make you have the best results long term. Another thing I think that speakers are very weak at, honestly, Roy, is looking in advance about the demographics of the audience that they're going to serve. I mean, whether you're a keynote speaker or a platform seller, the more you can craft your presentation to address the, you know, the needs and the demographics of the audience that you're serving, then the better response you're going to get. And that can be whether you're going to a corporate event, trying to figure out who the movers and shakers are that are going to be in the crowd ahead of time, or whether you're going to a platform event and determining whether you should slant the presentation in a certain way based on who or what type of people are in that audience. I mean, there's a key thing a lot of speakers don't think about. When you're measuring your results, obviously the big thing that if you're a platform seller that people are looking at, you know, what's your closing percentage? And to know, to know that, you need to know the number of attendees in the room, but more importantly, the number of buying units in the room. And what I mean by that is, well, here's a, here's a little story. I was at an event a few years ago that was in the homeschooling market, and there was maybe 100 people at the event. 
But when you got down to figuring it, there was a lot of man and wife with children and all that. And when all was said and done, there was maybe 15 to 20 actual buying units in the room. So you have to measure your your results off of buying units because obviously a husband and wife aren't going to purchase the same product. Or if it's a business crowd and maybe a guy has a business partner there or his team or whatever, well, the entire team isn't going to buy your product or service. So you got to, as best you can, try to figure out how many actual buying units are in that crowd. So, because I was actually going to ask you that before you said there was, because I would assume when you're going to a, an event that's high ticket, like expensive, you know, three grand for a weekend, say, as opposed to where they're just trying to fill seats, say, a hundred. I would say the conversion rate with the high end would be a lot higher because it tends to be that the people that are investing in themselves to go to an event will invest in a product as opposed sure. to when they're going free, they're, they're kind of, you're not getting the right buyers basically. Yeah. You got to have a, I mean, if they have a vested interest in the event, then they're more likely to be engaged and, and possibly purchase something. I mean, as, as we know online, Roy, that, you know, if you have a, a webinar or something like that, you know, most of them are free, obviously, with VIP upgrades these days. But, you know, you're you're doing average if you get 30% of the people who register for an event to actually show up in person, particularly if it's a free event. If you're getting above those numbers, then great. You know, keep keep working it and, and, and move forward. But, you know, typically 25, 30% is the most you're going to see in terms of show rate at a virtual event these days. Excellent. So I know that a seven-time author, which is impressive. So like uh, one is about websites. That it, uh, you might just tell me what they briefly what each what sure. each book is. So all, all the books are aimed at the speaker, author, information marketer, or event promoter niche. So anybody involved in sharing their expertise. So the first book I wrote was actually called View from the Back, 101 Tips for Event Promoters Who Want to Dramatically Increase Their Back-of-the-Room Sales. And that was all, it was a short, quick read about little things that can impact how you might sell at an event. So an event promoter could put a little few things in place that would increase their chances for success. The second book I wrote was called The 50 Biggest Mistakes I See Information Marketers Make. And I mean, keep in mind that the information market world has changed dramatically in the last 10 years. So, you know, when, when speaker fulfillment services started, it was all about big box packages and thump value. And, you know, so you get the product with you know, 10 DVDs and 10 CDs and two big manuals and all that. And that's, you know, transition over to more and more of its online delivery. But so I, I took what I had learned, again, from behind the scenes from my fulfill, fulfillment perspective and, and shared what information marketers could do to have better results. Then I had a colleague who wanted to write a book. He was a website guy. And so most it was called 50 Biggest Website Mistakes Online Business Owners Make. And to be honest, my co-author was the main content person in that. I was the cleanup and organized person in, in that particular co-authored event. Then I don't know if you're familiar with a guy named Rick Frischman at all, Roy. He's a guy he used to put on an event here in the States called Author 101. And so I wrote a book called Mistakes Authors Make, and it was a co-authored book, although I did all the writing on that particular one, but there was co-authors on it for marketing purposes. And that one we launched live at a, an event and took that one to the Amazon number one bestseller. So that's basically, you know, 50 tips on, you know, the authors need to know to avoid not getting in the results they want. 
And then that led to a book called ABCs of Speaking that I joint venture with a couple ladies on, Adrian Ashley and Katarina Rando. And that's led to the newest book, which will be coming out sometime early next year called How to Build a Profitable Speaking Business. So it's more in the speaking realm now, but again, across the realm of quote, information marketing, events, authors, speaking, all the books are kind of focused in that area. Excellent. And I know I've heard John another show and I thought it was a very valid point is a lot of the times when people are doing, like, say, the print on demand, they're going to the Amazon and they're promoting their Amazon on all their social media, which is they're not basically getting email marketing, you, you know, gathering the information. So you might give me a few things that people, authors make mistakes because a lot of the speakers actually either have a book or want to write a book to kind of get more gigs. Yeah, I mean, certainly you touched on something I think that's very important, Roy, and that, that in the whole realm of Amazon. I mean, yes, you need to be selling your book on Amazon because it's the 800-pound gorilla, and that's where people are typically going to go first. But if you have any kind of platform whatsoever, I mean, you've got an audience, you've got followers or whatever, in my opinion, you're crazy to drive your traffic to Amazon because it's Amazon's customer then and not yours. They don't call you up and say, hey, hey, Brett, you know, Frankie Frisch bought your book on such and such on this date, and here's his contact information. So clearly you need to include in the book for that are sold by like Amazon or Barnes and Noble or whatever, you know, what we call bounce backs or whatever to try to get them to opt into your list so that then you can do some follow-up marketing. But Amazon, yeah, they're 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 quite a challenge to deal with. And I can just speak from both a personal perspective and, and from the fulfillment company. I mean, they make you jump through so many hoops and they take a fairly large cut of the book. So if you're selling it via your own website, you're going to make significantly more money per copy sold and all that. And you also have the ability then if you're selling on your own website and handling your own fulfillment or having a fulfillment company do it for you, to include other things besides your book and your shipments. So if you have a, you know, a, an upsell sheet about a, some other product or service that you have, or a, just a bookmark or a postcard or a flyer or whatever it may be, a thank you note, you can't do those type of things if you're selling the book through Amazon alone. So if you want your book to truly be a, a most valuable marketing vehicle for you, then you need to drive that traffic to your website for those book sales so that they are your customer, then you can do the follow-up with them. And Because I get a lot from Amazon, and it's really, I suppose, convenience. But what I've noticed is a few of the books, especially bigger books and all, like if they're 500, they fall apart. Like they're very badly put together. And it's like any of these big corporations. You can't get anybody. So the way I look yeah. at it is the amount of time for me to resolve this, I just... I just leave the book the way it is and unfortunately pages fall out within two days, <laughs> which if you're doing it yourself, one, you're going to make sure that you get good quality when you're actually printing it. And two, you know, you don't, you, you don't want that kind of service. Yeah. You know, we've seen that before because we do have in the fulfillment company, we had quite a few authors who were using Amazon for their printing company, but not for their selling arms. So Amazon was a printer, but they would ship a few cases or a pallet or two of books to us at a time. And then we would integrate with their back-end system so that when they got a book order via their website, we would ship to the end customer for them. And we did see some instances where the quality was less than great, obviously. But we also saw that with uh, more traditional printers, too. We had one client who 
had to have the book reprinted one, two, three times by the printer. And it was a big name printing company because they, you know, somebody sized the cover at six by nine inches and the book inside was formatted at five and a half by eight and a half. So it was all askew and, you know, looked terrible. So it, it can happen outside the Amazon world. But yeah, I mean, clearly there's pros and cons to any approach and you got to do your due diligence with Amazon as much as anything. So I suppose with, with with your company, so like, do you do the printing as well? Or is it that just say I have the book, I post the the palette of the books and then you kind of do the, the shipment? Uh, primarily the fulfillment side of things, Roy. So the books would be printed by Amazon or some other printer and shipped to the fulfillment company. We integrate with the backend system of the speaker or author and so that when they get an order, it automatically comes over to our system and we ship it for them. Although we do products beyond the book for some of our authors. So if they have a home study course or some extra pieces that they need to be printed out, then we will do the actual printing of like three ring binders, spiral bound manuals, saddle stitch things and all that. We don't do the actual perfect bound printing of books internally. We have printing partners that we work with for that. But we do do a lot of printing. Still do CDs and DVDs, USB drives. I mean, they're obviously products beyond the book. And, and where the fulfillment company got into the duplication side of things was for authors who have products beyond the book. Excellent. And just by going through the different research, I came across something, but it was like tips for getting students to consume your content. So that's kind of interesting as well, because I know that some people, whether it's online, they're selling courses and yeah, nobody's even opening them or they only go 5% in. Yeah, yeah, that's just a little book that I put together a year or two ago, and it obviously there are dozens of different modalities for learning. Whether you're an audio person, a, video, a visual person, a reader, you know, whether it's podcast or Facebook lives or whatever, I mean, every delivery mechanism has its pros and cons, and the key to any of it is consumption. If you can't get your students to consume your information then the chances of them coming back to you for other products and services goes, you know, way down. And so that, it's a tips booklet, basically, that depending upon the modality, here's a few things you might consider incorporating into your product in some way to increase, increase the consumability. I mean, for example, you know, books is a big one. And most people, you know, they, they buy your book, but they never get around to reading it. I mean, we're all guilty of that, obviously. And so... I mean, for, I like to go to bookstores and if I go to the marketing books and I pick up a book and I look at it and I page it that first chapter and it's like 35 pages long or whatever, it's like, oh my God, this is too much work to even read one chapter. I'm not going to buy that book. So, I mean, books need to be consumable. I think, you know, who's the master of short books? You know, and you went through his course, I think, James Patterson. That's right. I mean, yeah. his, his chapters are two or three pages. I mean, it's like, well, I can read another three pages. I can read another three pages. Next thing you know, you read 100 or 200 pages. Or if it was a 25 or 30 page chapter, it's like, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll read it tomorrow or whatever, because it's too much work and I want to finish a whole chapter type thing. So your book's got to be consumable. I mean, you know, break up the text. Don't make the paragraphs too long. Don't make the font minuscule so old eyes like mine can actually, you know, read it. Without I'm shocked. I'm actually reading a book at the moment now based on a business I'm getting into. And I don't know, is it like three millimeters or four millimeters? Like, <laughs> why yeah. do they do that? Yeah. 
So, I mean, your book's got to be consumable. And as I mentioned before, you got to have bounce back mechanisms in it. So you offer, you know, a, a free special reports or audio interviews or something that's, you know, beyond the book that they got to go to your website to opt in to receive. And that way you can get them on the list and start selling other things to them. Excellent. So what other kind of tips for, say, a speaker to make a kind of profitable business? I mean, obviously being on stage, but like, what, what, what would you advise based on all your knowledge and all the experience over the years? Yeah, well, a couple of things we've already mentioned, and that is really study your demographics of your audience and get to know who's in the crowd so that you can craft your presentation as best as possible for that audience. We talked about metrics and tracking your results so that you know what's working best and not working so you can tweak as necessary as you go and, and build up your speaking history. But there are also little things like um, a few years ago, I was at an event, Roy, and I watched a friend of mine get carted off in an ambulance. And I could see the event promoter over on the side basically with a look of panic on his face because the particular person being carted away was scheduled to be the very next speaker at his event. So he's over there like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I got 90 minutes to fill. I got to keep my audience happy. I got to deliver my promises. And if you're a speaker, I fully recommend that you have what I would call a back pocket speech available. And that's a second speech that you're pre prepared to deliver at any time on a moment's notice. Obviously, it should tie into the content of the event appropriately. And I think Ideally, it's not a, a speaking speech or whatever, because you're going to have another presentation on the stage, hopefully, where you will be selling from the platform. But if you can step in and help that event promoter out, number one, when they do more events, who are they going to think of? Because they're appreciative of you helping them out in a jam. You, obviously, it gives you more face time with the audience so you can build better rapport. And when you get into your sales situation, hopefully, and close better results. And it's just a way to make you ingratiated to the event promoters because you're the one that helped them out. And I mean, you got to be humble and all that. But clearly, if you have a back pocket speech ready, you can take advantage of opportunities that may pop up that you couldn't if you didn't have that. I mean, you may never need it or whatever, but I've seen cases where it was needed. I've also known cases where a person had to go in and deliver somebody else's presentation with no notice because the person got sick. And they were able, because of their personality and skills or whatever, able to deliver that presentation on behalf of the other person and got great results. So, I mean, you need to be prepared to step and help out and be prepared to take advantage of, the, of those opportunities should they arise. You know, I had another situation where, gosh, what was it? Oh, it was maybe, I mean, it's been a few years or whatever, but I was having lunch with a colleague at a uh, Glazer Kennedy event. I think it was in St. Louis a few years ago. And this guy had built up a list of, you know, 55,000 people in the financial services market. And he decided he wanted to hire an internet guru, let's call it, to come in and, and, and craft a new campaign for him or whatever. Well, that guru never took the time to study this guy's brand and how he had communicated with his audience in the past. And those email communications are part of your brand. I mean, people come to expect a certain thing from you. And when they came out with a new email campaign that was totally opposite of how he had communicated with his list in the past, I mean, it started to happen right away. Unsubscribe, unsubscribe, unsubscribe. When all was said and done, a list that had been 55,000 people was a list of 
5,000 people. So you got to be very careful with your brand and anybody on your team or a VA or somebody you bring into consult or whatever really needs to understand how you've communicated with your flock in advance so that they can, I think, I mean, transition over to a harder hitting email. Now, you know, there's a lot of perspectives on email. I mean, I know a guy who any email he sends is a promotion email. He never sends content emails and he's built a massive business doing that way. So there's no one right way or wrong way necessarily. I mean, you got to decide what fits with your style and your personality, but I mean, you got to watch your branding. And I mean, this guy made a mistake in my opinion that probably cost him a lot. Another one I've seen that was, it wasn't funny because it really was quite painful for the uh, speaker, but they came into an event and sold, it was a few years ago, it was a, a, some kind of website building software or whatever. I mean, it was the next magic blue pill that everybody's looking for at these events. And so, I mean, he got the proverbial, every speaker's dream table rush to the back of the room. And over the course of the next hour, sold $375,000 worth of his software. Well, that was all well and good. And, you know, we were happy to process all those sales because we were taking a cut for on a, from path of the promoter. But then it turned out there was some kind of bug in the software and they could never get it to work properly. Well, they had to refund every penny of $375,000 to the attendees. I mean, it was a lot of egg on the speaker's face. It was a big financial burden for the promoter to make good on all that. And I mean, it didn't help us out any either, obviously. But I mean, it was just one of those things where, you know, it could have been avoided. My honest opinion is you should never deliver or try to sell from the stage some product or service that isn't fully developed yet. And I mean, I saw it again at an event in Vancouver a few years ago. A speaker sold something that they said, well, this would be ready to go in a week. Invariably, a week became two and then became four. And everybody that had bought it refunded because it wasn't getting delivered. So you got to be very careful. Now, I think there's some exceptions to that, honestly, Roy. I mean, if you're selling a live training, develop as you go type thing, you know, webinars or whatever, a master class, whatever, that you're planning to do live. Yeah, it's okay to build your content as you go in that scenario. And see if there's a demand for it as well when it's, you put it out there because why create it if there's nobody wants to buy it? Yeah, but you got to be very careful selling something that isn't fully developed. You got to be prepared to deliver on your processes and in the time frame that you know you have promised people. So okay. just a few more stories along the way. Yeah. Excellent. Like, and like you mentioned, Glazer Kennedy. I mean, I was subscribed to them for years getting the newsletter. Eh? I, I love Dan Kennedy. I have loads of his books. And I see uh, Russell Brunson, uh, I think a testimonial on your website, I believe, is it? Brunson? Russell. Yeah, you ever see that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I see the transition they made with the different owners as well. But uh, oh yeah, they made yeah. quite a few, man, quite a few. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Russell's like quite the go getter. We did a, some work for Russell several years ago. I mean, he's not an active client now, but I mean, I know Russell. I mean, any name you can throw out there in the internet marketing space, I probably know them personally and, and have done work for most of them. No, excellent. So finally, I I, I like to ask people because both for speaking side and also for like books for me the social media seems to be a minefield and i like to know what what ones you feel work for you and what ones you don't 
Well, it's, you know, it's kind of a testing process. Yeah. I built up my biggest following on LinkedIn because I was very aggressive through a program on LinkedIn a few months ago. And so I've grown that to about 8,300 and some, you know, followers on LinkedIn. I have always used Facebook for personal stuff. I've never really tried to use it for business, although that's transitioning. So I don't have a massive following on Facebook, maybe 1,200 or whatever, but I'm yeah, starting to use it big, yeah. Uh, I mean, I just signed up for an Instagram account about two weeks ago. So that's Instagram's a brand new world to me. Uh, I mean, I've got a YouTube channel up and starting to post some more videos. I've, I've got a lot of videos up that I've done over the years, but starting to post more focusing on the speaking business. And I, I've dabbled in Twitter, but I've never really spent any time there. So, I mean, I, I intend to, you know, play across all platforms to some extent, but, uh, you know, which one will get me the best results? Only time will tell. <laughs> I, I think based on what we discussed earlier is you actually get the email of the people that have purchased something or that are interested, which in turn is better than any of these social media because you're dealing directly with them as opposed to throwing it out there, hoping somebody comes and sees it. Yeah, I mean, you got to have your own website, obviously, with your ethical bribe to hopefully that they'll opt in, to, you know, want to get that special report or audio or video or whatever so that you can get them on the list and then start nurturing them to sell your higher ticket items too but uh yeah i mean i've seen some conversions from the various social media but uh the most important thing as you indicated roy is to get them on your list as soon as possible excellent so listen totally enjoyed our conversation so you might let people know where they can find you sure the uh primary website is brettridgeway.com and that's brett with one t and ridgeway without an e so b-r-e-t-r-i-d-g-w-a-y and I invite people to pick up the uh, free special report there. Three key things entrepreneurs must master to build a profitable speaking business. And I hope some of what we have shared today, Roy, will help those folks out. I'm sure it will because you shared a lot. And uh, I'll make sure I put the link button, the audio, and the video. Thank you very much, Brett. All right. My pleasure, Roy. Thank you so much. So that's all for the Speaking Podcast. As mentioned, we're on speakingpodcast.com. you find us on BitChute and YouTube. And be sure to give us a thumbs up, subscribe, Share with your friends and everything about me and my other podcasts and my podcasting coach, bio.link forward slash podcaster. Until next week, take care.